0: Hello? I have a call from beyond the grave for you. Shall I put it through?
1: Imagine this. Imagine you're the presenter of a popular, and some say rather good podcast about the history of technology, and you're doing a fun Halloween special about when technology and the paranormal bleed into each other in the Victorian age and beyond. And then when you get to the bit when you're explaining about who the Fox sisters were and how they began the fashion of modern spiritualism and how they heard these strange raps and taps from the other side, when you begin to hear strange clicking noise, is it the microphone, the software... Is it mice or is it something
2: else? They begin to have intercommunications and they receive raps and knocks and lots of people become extremely interested in the Fox sisters and they become a media sensation in the period in the the late 1840s, early 1850s.
1: I just heard some clicking there. Was that you? Was that me? Maybe it's the Fox sisters. They're
2: communicating with us right now. (laughs)
1: Welcome to Patented Gone Paranormal with me, Dallas Campbell. Now, on the face of it, technology might seem to be the antithesis of the spirit world. But just at that point in our history when technology really began to dominate our way of life, it also sprouted these strange, weird, supernatural arms and legs Spiritualism emerged in the middle of the 19th century, a new form of an old belief that somehow we can survive our own death and it's possible maybe to communicate with the dead by various means. It began this worldwide fascination with seances, mediums, paranormal investigators, as well as hoaxes, charlatans, magicians and their ilk. And from the very beginning, Spiritualism and the paranormal was deeply meshed in the new technologies that were emerging in the Victorian era, changing the way that people saw the world. Ghostly photographs, haunted typewriters, spirit voices being picked up on the radio, paranormal podcasts even. Click, 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 click. My guest today is Ephraim Sara who studies how the occult intersects with science and technology and is the author of a new book, Psychic Investigators: Anthropology, Modern Spiritualism, and Credible Witnessing in the Late Victorian Age. Enjoy the show, whatever side of the abyss you are on. Ephraim, welcome to the show. It's no problem at all. It's lovely to have you here. I think the key message for this episode is ghosts aren't just for Halloween. (laughs) I know this is a sort of Halloween episode, but you do some really, really interesting work, Ephraim. Just for our listeners, explain a little bit about your academic interests.
2: Well, my academic interests fundamentally rest within the entangled histories of science and belief. And so I'm interested in that historical and contemporary relationship especially when it comes to extraordinary belief in things like spirits, ghosts, and telepathy.
1: See, I love all that stuff. And maybe it's my, I don't know how old you are, but maybe it's my age. But certainly in the 1980s, there was this great kind of wave of ghosts, monsters, and UFOs, and things like that. I've got my Osborne Book of the Unexplained. And I used to lap all that kind of stuff up, not that I believe in either ghosts, UFOs or monsters anymore, but the idea of them was just fascinating and, and really, really interesting. And, and and you're right, there is this wonderful link, which is what we're going to be talking about between technology and spiritualism. We're going to sort of define where we are in a moment. Can I ask, are you a sceptic? Are you a believer? Where are you? As an academic, I like to think you're probably a sceptic rather than a wholehearted believer in
2: ghosts and things. Well, I think I have an interesting background in the sense that my mother is a spiritualist. So
1: Interesting. So I I
2: I grew up in a household where I was introduced to this stuff from a very early age. And my grandma her mother, my grandmother was also a spiritualist, and her parents as well, going right into the nineteenth century. So in some respects you could say that I'm from a a multi-generational spiritualist background, but I'm a skeptic, so I've sat in many seances and I've visited many haunted locations in my research and I've never seen any evidence that has compelled me to be a believer. But I would call myself open-minded, and I'm very respectful towards spiritualist beliefs, because I'm not interested in the reality of whether or not this stuff is there, but more in terms of questions of why people believe or don't believe.
1: Yeah, I'm the same. Whatever you are, I'm the same, I think. I'm fascinated about why we believe stuff and why, despite there being zero evidence, why we like it. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to play around with Ouija boards and stuff. I remember at school getting really into it. You know, we'd get kind of, we'd draw the alphabet on a bit of paper and we'd all put our fingers on the glass and lo and behold, it would move around. But when you're sort of 10 or 11, you kind of think that's exciting and extraordinary and like, yes, I'm somehow connected to the spirit world. But when, then when you kind of look into it a bit deeper, you go, okay, well, it's just kind of micro subconscious movements of the hand. and But we, which in a way is kind of equally interesting. A little bit later, actually, I was living in Los Angeles and there was a haunted house next door to where I was living. And it was a kind of quite a famous haunted house that had been written about in stories and stuff. And as a sceptic, I just wanted to see if it was possible to find a normal ghost, like a ghost that would just sit down and have a normal chat. Because my whole premise was like, well how come when you die you turn into an idiot? like why I, I'm not going to make walls bleed and books flap and all the kind of ghosty Halloweeny stuff when I'm alive. So what happens when you die, you suddenly become like slightly deranged and you know, and if you can make a cold spot appear, then presumably you can just sit down and have a normal chat. and normal chats didn't happen. there were no normal chats. We couldn't find a ghost despite doing everything possible.
2: Well, I mean, in terms of the history of it, I mean, if you look at the work of the Victorian writer, Andrew Lang, who was one of the biggest authorities in the 19th century on hauntings, especially, there are countless mundane ghost stories where what happens is really... Uninteresting in terms of the phenomena. But what grabs the headline are the ones where the most incredible stuff happens, like, as you say, the bleeding walls (laughs) or the wailing. (laughs) I mean, you're not interested in the ones where there's sort of a a ghost sitting in a chair and sort of crying to themselves. It's not really as interesting.
1: (laughs) Let's talk about spiritualism, particularly when it started, because we're talking about quite a specific bit of history when it became popular, certainly in America, which is. Well, I mean, we can go all the way back to people like Swedenborg in the 1600s, but modern spiritualism in the Victorian times, when are we talking and where are we talking?
2: Typically, people associate the origins of what we would call the modern spiritualist movement to sort of differentiate it from that earlier period. They associate it with the the Fox sisters who were from Hydesville, New York, which is just outside of Rochester in New York state. And that area at the time was known as the burnt-over district because of the force through which uh, Christian evangelicalism just sort of goes through it. And so there's a lot of religious um, activity going on at the time, and it was ripe for new kinds of beliefs. And and spiritualism emerges out of that context. And they sort of become the the first big celebrities of modern spiritualism and soon are followed by other New York-based mediums. So was it a kind of hush? against
1: sort of organized religion, against authority? I mean, what was going on at the time in, in New York that led to this idea of spiritual? I mean, what do we mean by spiritual? We're talking about kind of communicating with the spirit realm or, or dead people, is that right?
2: So the principle of spirit, modern spiritualism rests with the idea of the spirit hypothesis, and that's the idea that the spirits of the dead can intercommunicate with the living. So that's the core tenet of spiritualism.
1: And I suppose that's always been – has that been an idea that humans have lived with kind of forever? When you look at different cultures and civilizations from the ancient Egyptians, we've always had this obsession with surviving one's death somehow, or this sort of duality between body and soul, where bodies may die but souls go on. Is this just an extension of that?
2: Well, and this is what anthropologists, especially in the 19th century, were arguing. And the key figures there would be people like Edward Burnett Tyler. And again, our friend Andrew Lang, who I mentioned earlier. So Lang, as an example, writes this very important book in the 1890s called Cock Lane and Common Sense. Uh, the title refers to a famous ghost haunting from London on Cock Lane, which we can talk about a bit later. But a, <laughs> <laughs> what the hell's Cock Lane? Okay, anyway, Cock Lane. Brilliant. Cock Lane and Common it. Sense. And one of the things that uh, Lang raises is this exact point that you've just said, which is in, in all cultures and in all times, there's always been this belief in spirits, And that in itself is interesting and worthy of investigation, because why is it, whether it's a belief or a false belief, that all humans have it? And so his book explores it, and he gets into the deep history cross-culturally and historically. And at the end of it, he, he is very open to the idea that ghosts and mediums are real. And, you know, it's quite interesting in that way. And and he really tries to sort of rationalize it as, well, maybe spiritualism, the spirits themselves is, is not real, but mediums and telepathy, that's real. And that's real because it's of human origin. And I think we have to contextualize that within the context of the late Victorian period, where you have all of these new technologies being you know, created that seemingly work with invisible energies. And so the idea that humans could be able to transmit their own invisible energy wasn't so rational by the logic of the time.
1: So we've suddenly got, yeah, that's a really interesting point. We've suddenly got these new, well, new technologies we'll talk about in a moment, but also things like the description of things like electromagnetism. And people talking about the ether and you know, this sort of proto-science of, of the of the day would feed into this belief of supernaturalism,
2: I suppose. Is that
1: is that fair? Is that Yeah,
2: I mean and it's a comparison that's made very early on, those connections. And some of the early, you know, scientific figures within uh, psychical research are researchers within the physical sciences. So if for example Oliver Lodge, who is a very important figure within ether theory, uh, is one of those important figures to be a proponent of spiritualism. And in fact, despite all of his really significant research within the sciences, his best-selling book of all time is his one Raymond where he talks about a series of conversations that he has with the spirit of his dead son who died during World War One? That's interesting.
1: The ether, how do we best describe the ether? The ether was believed to be this all-pervasive kind of medium, a bit like air, I suppose, that things could travel through throughout the universe of course it was discredited gosh pretty soon after i suppose
2: in the 20th century it gets discredited but that's right it's this idea that there's this all-encompassing energy that connects all living things and non-living things and because of that principle the idea was that you could use the ether to break through the veil and potentially communicate with what lived in that unseen world where the spirit may lie
1: it's interesting, though, that as a he was a scientist, uh, Lodge, is that his name? Yes. That's correct, yes. Presumably had obviously had an emotional reason to want to, to be able to talk to his son who died in the First World War. It's interesting how you can kind of trick your brain to, trick's probably the wrong word, I don't mean it in a disparaging way, but convince yourself that there is something going on and you can actually have conversations with someone who's dead. And be a scientist.
2: Well, and it's something that Houdini talks about in his famous work, A Magician Among the Spirits, which is a great title for a book, Mm. where he says that people who are suffering from tremendous grief are often desperate for any way to communicate with their dead loved ones. Houdini himself is so interested in trying to discover whether or not spiritualism is real because he wants to talk to the spirit of his mother who he really missed. And so we always talk about Houdini as this skeptic, but actually you know, he's a very religious person. You know, he's, He grew up with a rabbi. His father was a rabbi. He was a practicing Jew throughout his life. And so it wasn't unreasonable for him to think that spiritualism might be real. But every time he tried to investigate and find legitimate mediums and legitimate spirit communication he proved that in his methods as a stage magician that tricks were being used to produce it But there was an open desire to try and prove the reality of spiritualism. But time and time again, you know, he just couldn't. And that grief was a key part, he believed, to the why there's this revival in First World War, because so much death is happening.
1: That's interesting. Gosh, so it was in a way it was a kind of reaction to that, a reaction to world events. Let's talk about the Fox Sisters. There was a nice introduction to the Fox Sisters as a kind of beginning, if you like, of this modern spiritualist movement. So just very briefly, who were they and what did they do that caused interest?
2: Well, they were a group of sisters who lived in a small cottage in farmland in Hydesville, New York. And um, one evening, they discovered that they had the ability to talk with spirits of the dead. And so they begin to have uh, intercommunications, and they receive raps and knocks, and they create a code for what yes and no was, and they pose questions. And it, you know, it catches on really quickly locally and spreads, and lots of people become extremely interested in the Fox sisters, and they become a media sensation in the period in the, 18, in the late 1840s, early 1850s. And it's from them, others start claiming that they can do similar Intercommunications.
1: I just heard some clicking there. Was that you? Was that me? Maybe it's the Fox sisters.
2: Maybe they're communicating us requests right (laughs) now. There (laughs) you
1: go. Well, here we go. So the eighteen. When did you say? Eighteen sixties. Did you say?
2: Eighteen forty-eight is when they first rise to prison. Yeah.
1: And that gets us into our key topic, because this link between the technology of the age, because suddenly, presumably, you had things like, well, not quite telephones, but certainly things like Morse code, which was clicks and beeps, and a way of communicating over large distances for the first time. Was that idea or the public reaction to that telegraph connected to what the Fox sisters were picking up? with their clicks and beeps.
2: Well, there is a connection, and spiritualists are very quick to highlight that connection, that if you could communicate with these technologies through a system of codes, of, as you say, of beeps, as an example, that doesn't seem too dissimilar to what they're suggesting mediums are doing. And a lot of early spiritualists think that the invention of the telegraph means that there's now a tool to enhance the mediumistic powers of spiritualist members. And it becomes something that's appropriated by the spiritualist community into spiritualist communications. There's a belief you can use these new technologies to enhance your ability to speak with the dead. So it's not just telegraphs, but telephones and radios get appropriated into occultic practices as pretty much from their invention.
1: That's really interesting. Presumably, that old adage of any technology that is sort of new or far enough into the future is indistinguishable from magic. So presumably, I don't know, is it right to think that the idea of being able to communicate over vast distances, things like radio and being able to hear voices over vast distances, being able to record sound and play it back, all of this in a way seemed kind of magical at the time and would segue into spiritual belief.
2: Well, that's exactly it. And again, because take, for instance, those early crystal radios, which seemingly function without any power source because they're working off of the radio frequencies themselves. Well, immediately, spiritualists grab onto that and say, well, it's working by the same energies that spirits are communicating through. And therefore, once again, a lot of early spiritualists are using these shortwave low frequency crystal radios to enhance their ability to speak with the dead and you know again thinking about these scientific figures edison was using crystal radios and himself one day picked up a strange sort of what he believed were a conversation in a language that he couldn't quite understand that he thought was evidence to suggest the possibility that the radio was picking up spirit conversations.
1: Edison, I think I'm right in saying he actually developed a machine. Was it an EVP, electronic voice phenomenon machine, or some kind of, amongst all of his other things, was trying to construct some sort of machine to talk to the dead?
2: Yeah, so he designed what he called his sort of a spirit phone so that he could have conversations with them. It never was completed, but it was, a, it was a, one of those later projects in his life that he was trying to develop. And he has this famous interview with uh, Scientific America, I think it's in the 1920s, near the end of his life, where he's saying that the only way we can determine once for all if there is this unseen world is with science. And it's with these technologies that we're going to be able to do it. <laughs>
1: Over on the Warfare podcast by History Here, we bring you brand new military histories from around the world. Each week, twice a week, we release new episodes with world-leading historians, expert policymakers, and the veterans who served. From the greatest tanks of the Second World War, and so what are you actually trying to get out of your tank? You're trying to get maneuverability and you're trying to get a really big gun. Your tiger and your Panther are there to dominate the battlefield, primarily on the Eastern Front and in the North Africa and all that sort of stuff. But by the time they're actually coming in in decent numbers, that moment has already passed. Through to new histories that help us understand current conflicts,
0: Any invader, any attacker, any adversary will exploit gaps
2: within society. It was true then, it's true today, but the Finns signaled that they were united
0: and I think that's what the Ukrainians should signal today too.
1: Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts and join us on the front lines of military history.
0: Hold up, what was that?
1: interesting. So these technologists who were inventing all of this stuff, people like Edison, scientists, A, they were really into spiritualism, or they seem to be. I know people like Alfred Russell Wallace, who is famous, of course, for working with Darwin on natural selection, was also really into spiritualism. But they were also using science to try and prove it or disprove it and using technology to try and prove or disprove.
2: That's right. I mean, Wallace is a very interesting example of a scientific figure and devout spiritualist who wanted to use science to establish the authority and credibility of the spirit hypothesis. And he goes so far as to integrate his spiritual beliefs into his evolutionary model. So as you say, Wallace is the co-discoverer of evolution by natural selection. And he's a real big figure, especially in the 1860s, within the scientific naturalist community, of which people like Thomas Henry Huxley are also involved. And he's trying to show these other scientists that spiritualism is real and we can prove it through scientific methods. And he does many, many, many sittings with mediums. And writes rigorous reports about those experiences to try and prove once and for all that the spirit hypothesis isn't a hypothesis, but is it is something genuine and trying to find the naturalistic laws that govern spirit and psychic phenomena. Mm. So
1: we've got things like the telegraph, we've got things like radio. There's also other inventions and technologies of the time that seem to segue into this. Things like the typewriter as well, like haunted typewriters, people imagining spirits, kind of quite reasonably being able to sort of type messages (laughs) using typewriters and things. I suppose the most famous one, the one that I always think of is photography, really the birth of photography. Because I suppose when we think of photography now... We think of Photoshop and it's really easy to fake a photograph. But back then, I imagined photography, again, was so new and startling and extraordinary and was very much a kind of a view of reality, like it was an objective view. And so people seeing ghosts and spirits and ectoplasm and things within photographs, that seemed to take off a lot as well, didn't it?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Fairly early on into the history of of modern spiritualism, photograph and photographic technologies are brought into the seance, understandably, because it's another way to use science to try and capture another source of evidence to show that it's either real or not real. And the earliest known photographer to use photographic technologies to capture spirits is an American named William Mumbler who was eventually exposed as a fraud and actually went to trial in New York, where the star witness for the prosecution was P.T. Barnum, who hires another photographic expert to show how Mumbler likely cheated to create those photographs.
1: Can you just say when we talk about photography, just for our listeners, just explain what we're talking about when we're talking about sort of spirit photography. I imagine kind of those very early Victorian photos, but with kind of blurry shapes in the background or other faces and kind of weird stuff.
2: So the standard spirit photograph, which emerges in the 19th century, typically uses photographic plates that are one quarter size, which is sort of a standard size for a photographic plate. And they include a portrait or a scene with the imprint of a spirit as well on it. And usually the spirit is behind... The, uh, or sometimes in front, but it's translucent. So it shows that it's not
0: actually physically there,
2: indeed. (laughs) But there were other ways to create uh, spirit photographs. So if it's a fake photograph, as a spiritist would say, because they would say there are both fake and real ones, the fake ones are typically produced by having an impression already on the plate before the portrait is taken. But there were other ways when you're doing controlled testing to still create spiritual effects on a plate. And one of the ones that's sneakier is because they're still using cloth as the sort of cap for their camera lens, if you pierce small holes into that cloth, which is indistinguishable to the naked eye, it lets in just enough light to create that spirit mist that you sometimes see on old Victorian photographs. So it's another way to still produce it under controlled conditions and to sort of make a case for the legitimacy of spiritualism. And skeptics were aware of this, of course, but it's harder to prove that there are holes in a cloth.
1: Ben. But presumably they were all fake because I'm going to put it out there and tell you that ghosts don't actually exist. <laughs> but presumably any kind of spirit, photo, unless it was a kind of mistake and someone developed a plate and they went, holy crap, look, there's a ghost there. But all these Victorian things you see of people with ectoplasm, you know, if you've seen The Exorcist, you know what ectoplasm is, the kind of stuff that's emitted from people's mouths and other orifices. But nowadays, it just looks ridiculous. It looks like bits of cheesecloth, which is what it was. You know, how do you distinguish between real and genuine? They're all, I mean, real and fake. They're all fake.
2: Well, I, it's the same thing that we we deal with today when we talk about sort of fake news that we have now, which is unless you can concretely show that it is fake, if you leave open any suggestion then you can't completely confirm that it is fake. And there were lots of mediums who were never exposed as a fraud. And, you know, what spiritualists time and time again always argue is it doesn't matter how many times you expose a fraud. If you have one person who hasn't, it maintains the argument. And there are Victorian spiritualists who were never exposed as fraud. Daniel Douglas Hume, as an example, is the key example of this Phenomenal Victorian medium who did amazing feats that were never exposed as a fraud. He apparently levitated, he apparently was able to grow several inches or shrink several inches, to hold a hot amber in his hand without burning himself. So these are amazing phenomena, and so far as the evidence and the accounts show, he's never been exposed as a fraud so he's used as this example of well he wasn't a fraud and therefore the spirit hypothesis is correct
1: but it's a bad ar- well, i say it's a bad argument philosophically it's interesting because it gets you into the whole philosophy of science which is about non falsifiability like just because you can't if you can't falsify something then By definition, it sort of falls outside science because you can never disprove ghosts. You can never disprove God. You can never disprove flying saucers. But that doesn't therefore mean (laughs) that they exist. It just means that there's nothing to study, really. You know, I can't disprove Santa Claus. I can't disprove fairies at the bottom of the garden, which gets us into... Maybe the most famous kind of photograph of the era, the Cottingley Fairies. The, so it was a sort of black and white picture of these two or, or young girl, a child sitting in her garden and, and surrounding her of fairies.
2: Cottingley Fairies, I think, it captures the imagination of everyone because we've all, as you say, especially in your childhood, we all really wanted magic. Yeah, well, that's to it. be we, real. Wanted,
1: we want to believe. We yeah. want to believe,
2: and I think that's the thing that egged on the story of the Cottingley Fairy, but what was significant about them is that uh, soon after the photograph is taken it uh, is shown to a group of theosophists uh, and a gentleman named Gardner ends up I want to be a, a
1: theosophist just because they're called theosophists
2: <laughs> <laughs> and in, you know that's a long conversation in its own I, sorry, right sorry, I didn't own to right. Interrupt. sorry. okay <laughs> no problem <laughs> But uh, eventually the photographs get shown to Arthur Conan Doyle. And that really leads to the broad public attention because he publishes this book called The Coming of the Fairies. He staked his reputation on the legitimacy of those photographs. And, you know, it, it backfired terribly because, of course, there was so much evidence to show that it wasn't Real and later on, of course, in the nineteen eighties, the two girls say that they lied and that they produced fake photographs. Well,
1: that's it. I think about the famous Loch Ness monster photo in the nineteen I think it was the nineteen seventies. The surgeon's photo. It's called this doctor. So you know, of course, oh, he was a doctor, so it must be true. Which is the the argument from authority. You know, the famous photo of this kind of black shape poking out the water. Mm -hmm. Everyone got really excited about it, but it's clearly bollocks. (laughs) I mean, you know, actually, with the Fox sisters who we began with. With their clicks, they came out, and there was a period where they confessed that they were just clicking their fingers, or it was just the joints, their toe joints, that were. And then I think they backtracked as well. I forget the exact story, but maybe you could tell us.
2: So two of them later in life, when they fell on very hard times, confessed, and then one of them, Kate Fox, says, "I had to say that because I was desperate for the money, and I had fallen on hard times. And actually, no, I am a real medium, and that." That, of course, was a huge blow to believers when the Fox sisters, at least two of them, admitted to cheating and then didn't. And that didn't help the cause of spiritualists when it happened. And so they hitched their wagon much more after that point to those figures who are never exposed as frauds, where certainly there's a lot of doubt cast around them. But there isn't the evidence to show that they're frauds. Again, Hume is a good example, but so too is one of my favorite examples, which is Mrs. Guppy, who allegedly flew several miles across London into a locked seance room by Spirit of Port. Amazing. Amazing.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love, I desperately want all these stories to be true. I, and let's talk about sort of debunking some of this. We, we mentioned Houdini, and there's others, modern day people. James Randi, who's sadly not around anymore, was a great debunker of the supernatural. Well, actually, that idea of skilled magicians, I mentioned James Randi, who was a very brilliant magician who died recently, was fascinated by debunking supernaturalism. Houdini, we mentioned, probably the famous magician of of all time. Let's just pause and talk about Houdini. Why? So Houdini, listeners will know, famous escapologist and magician. When was Houdini around, sort of 1930s?
2: Mainly from the opening decades of the 20th century, from sort of 1900 to 1930 is his biggest period of activity.
1: Yeah. He did this amazing... stuff and obviously he was a magician so he there were tricks that he would do why do you think magicians like Houdini were so interested in spiritualism and and certainly debunking it
2: Well, certainly it depends on on the magician. But in Houdini's case, he actually starts out early in his career pretending to be a mystic who also holds fake seances. Which
1: magicians do.
2: Which magicians (laughs) still do to this day. And I work with magicians who make a good living recreating Victorian seances. But um, in this case, he was making a lot of money off of it. And then his mother passes away. And that's really the critical point of change for him, because he suddenly realizes how he's exploiting people who are suffering from tremendous grief, from the loss of a loved one. And he suddenly thinks that this isn't okay, and that he wants to use his powers as a magician for good, because he can see how people cheat much more so than other types of investigators. And so he uses those powers for good to expose fraud, because he thinks it's so exploitive. And again, it's a period, especially around World War I, where there's such a spike because so many people want to talk to their dead loved ones, especially sons who die in battle. And so he uses his skill as a magician to investigate and show who the false people are because he sees it as so abusive.
1: It's really interesting. And there was a case here in the UK, and I forget the medium in inverted commas' name, where she did a live stage show. Getting people in contact with dead relatives is really exploitative it's not a kind thing to do I, I suppose and she was recently exposed on and she was wearing an earpiece and they would, you know it was a, an obvious
2: fraud anyway it sounds like so many stories <laughs> i know
1: i know but what i mean is it still goes on that idea where people desperately wanting to communicate with loved ones will sort of suspend disbelief and go and see fortune tellers and spiritualists and mediums in order to try and sate that Thirst of wanting closure, or whatever it is, it is a an unpleasant thing that still goes on. I wanted to just to talk about sort of modern technology, just quickly. We talked about the advent of telegraph and photography and radio, and you know, in those particular times. But nowadays, we, you know, we look at photography. And the internet and television and all of those modern mediums still have that hangover of spiritualism, don't they? Particularly, I mean, like I said, TV, the, the number of ghost hunting shows that are on TV still, <laughs> so, you know, a lot of money is made from this.
2: You know, there's this false, I think, narrative, especially among skeptics, that it sort of is this spiritualism is a Victorian thing. It sort of disappears and it doesn't really exist anymore. But of course, that is really an elite science perspective and it never disappeared and it's always had a strong following. And the sort of paranormal investigator culture we see today is just the legacy of that Victorian culture that was created back then. And Victorian spiritualism was always a broad cultural phenomena. It was one of the most popular forms of entertainment, even in the 19th century. And all these TV programs today are just an extension of that longstanding public broad interest in the paranormal so it never really went away it's always been there
1: and it's interesting how new technologies have found new ways of presenting this idea of communication i mean the ghost tv show is interesting because not once ever has it turned out to be a ghost in every single tv show where people wander around haunted houses in the dark with flashlights going oh i can feel a draft it's never it's always kind of maybe it was a ghost or maybe it was not once has anything ever turned out to be magic i suppose is my take on this and yet we still want it. We still want to see it. We still want to watch it. We still love it. And
2: I think it's that point exactly that it isn't explainable and it isn't explained away. And because it's left hanging, it gives credence to the argument that spirits could be responsible. The onus is always on the skeptic to disprove. It's never on the believer.
1: But it should be the other way around. Re- extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I mean, that's kind of how science works, isn't it? It's like if you tell me there's a flying saucer in my garage, then the burden of proof is with you, the person who posits that idea.
2: Well, yes, to the scientists, but to the (laughs) theologians, to the theologian, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you know, that's not how theologians think, as an example. And we can think of spiritualism as a religion, just like any other type. And the explanation that invisible forces are responsible for that, and you can't see those invisible forces, is in itself sufficient to satisfy the claims that they're making. Whereas for the science, it isn't, and they're the ones that are left. With the onus
1: of proof. I'm interested in these new technologies. So television's an obvious one. Television ghosts, mediums and seances on television, that kind of thing. But also things like we mentioned typewriters. There was a really interesting story I remember... About a BBC microcomputer being haunted in like the in like the nineteen eighties when home computers became a thing. Certainly, things like the internet. There's loads and loads of kind of haunted internet sites. I don't know if you know Tara the android and Creepy Pasta and all the, all those sorts of things. Suddenly, the internet and as a way of communicating has become. Again, very popular in in supernatural circles. But I'm interested in things, you know, particularly things like photography, the fact that we all carry phones around with us now and video cameras. I mean, how is particularly things like flying saucers and UFOs, the fact that we don't see any flying saucers. I mean, we do. People still obviously go, oh, look, it's a flying saucer. But if there were flying saucers, if there were ghosts, presumably we should be snapping them all the time and we're not.
2: You know, it's an interesting discussion that is ongoing within communities, uh, both on the sceptic and believer side. One of the arguments that's often cited as the reason for why ghosts aren't being recorded everywhere is that these new technologies are actually, there's something about the ways in which they function, that it is working against the conditions necessary for spirit activity But who decides
1: the conditions that are necessary? That's my point. It's like, well, surely when you die, I don't know. It's like, well...
2: Well, it's a... There's been a long discussion about what are the conditions necessary for spirit activity to be maximized is a question right from the beginning of modern spiritualism. And, you know, one of the things that is routinely stated is that you need to have a darkened atmosphere. It's very quiet, where it's perfect conditions for cheating to occur in. Because Well, exactly. Because it of course limits the senses. So the idea that the control of the atmosphere has to be one that suits the spirits. And also just so happens to suit the type of conditions where you can cheat is one that hasn't gone unnoticed. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay, so you may have noticed I'm a skeptic. However, I still love all this stuff. I love ghost stories. I love flying saucer stories. And all of this stuff is just, I love it. Do you have a ghost story or something that you've heard about that you actually like? think that's actually really interesting? There's something you know, may be quite convincing there.
2: Well, in the sense that I've also, as an anthropologist, I've sat in many seances myself, and I've seen some stuff that I couldn't rationally explain. And I'm quite open about that, where I've seen a medium produce something within those, you know, controlled settings where there's lots of things to monitor what's going on, and yet something still incredible has happened. And that doesn't mean that it's of spiritual or, or psychic origin. It just means that I in my powers of observation, couldn't determine what may have caused it. Can you tell us what that was? So there was one time, and it was in the '90s. So it was a long time ago, where I was at a, a séance, and while the medium was talking to the spirits, and we had cameras, and we had good lighting, and we had all sorts of other technologies to check the pressure and and the conditions of the room, a spirit hand, allegedly, as as the medium said, did manifest itself on the table and then disappear. And you saw it? Yeah. What did it look like? Exactly how you would expect sort of a ghostly sort of orbish thing to look like, to sort of hover there for a moment and then just so it sort of fizzled in and fizzled out as quickly as you saw it. Did you not it. freak out? <laughs> no, I haven't. No, because I've gone to enough of these things in, over the years to not... And also it's part of the, there's protocols to seances as well. So screaming and jumping is something that is sort of <laughs> I think, <laughs> shunned. <but it's>, <laughs> it,
1: I think if I saw something like that, and it's giving me the creeps just thinking about it. If I saw something, if something happened like that, like I saw a ghost, I wouldn't be able to function as a human. If I actually suddenly change my belief that I, there is a spirit realm or there is a God or there is something or there are aliens, I don't know how anyone can believe that and actually leave their house in the morning without like crying that everything they know about the world is suddenly wrong or is suddenly changed. You know, if I thought there was that going on, I just couldn't function. I'd go and lie in a corner weeping openly.
2: I think for me, I've read enough and studied enough of the investigations to have occurred since the 1840s to be convinced (laughs) that because so many greater minds than me have put their skills to this and shown it not to be real, that I'm confident enough that what I probably witnessed wasn't spiritual entity, but still, I couldn't explain it, and so I'm not going to say it was or wasn't anything. What I'll say is that it was unexplainable.
1: Well, that's it, and I totally appreciate and totally sympathise with people who see things because I think we do see things. I think we do convince ourselves and we see things and we believe things. So it's not about poo pooing them, but you know, because we definitely we do have that capability. Um, Listen, thank you very much, Ephraim, for joining us for our Halloween special. I love this subject. I'm fascinated by tech and belief. I think your subject that you write about is just terrific. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Have a happy Halloween. That's it. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review, whether you are in the spirit world or the real world. It really helps others discover the show. It makes us feel good. It helps the algorithms do their algorithmic thing. And also, we love hearing from you as well. So get in touch via the Ouija board or via Twitter or whatever means of technology you'd like to get in touch with. We'll hear you. Next time, a bit of change of direction, we are talking about the advent of online advertising, <sighs> where I find out how it works and how we ended up with... Well, going from proper ads. You know the ads in the 1980s and the 1990s that everyone remembers and you can still hum the jingle to because we all watched the same ads on telly and they were quite good and quite fun. Maybe they weren't. Maybe I'm just looking at them from a nostalgic point of view. But anyway, everyone remembers them. But certainly the ads now online that we have to scroll past and click past and everything else drives me around the bend. Anyway, I'm going to be getting to the bottom of that next week. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.